You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Hi everyone. We're going to come back to read God's word together. Our passage today is in Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 12. If you have a blue Bible with you, it's on page 1116. So Acts 20, verses 1 to 12. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Perius from Berea, Aristarchus and Secondus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul, was, as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Thanks, Lorianne. Hi, everyone. My name is Boaz, and I'm going to be watching you like a hawk to see if you fall asleep during this sermon. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for gathering us together today. And please may your word to us by your Holy Spirit be a encouragement and a comfort to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain nights that will always be etched in our memories. We all have those nights to remember, don't we? A night out with friends, a night of extraordinary travel, a night of anguish and torment a night of quietly gazing at the spectacular night sky, a night of heartbreak, a night of hushed conversation in the wee small hours, 
These nights are powerful and remain with us forever. Often they shape our personal stories, they deepen our relationships, and sometimes they can even change the direction that we're heading on in life. And in our passage tonight, our characters have one of these nights to remember. So as we unravel the narrative, we're going to discover some intriguing details that will give significance to our lives today. So if you have the passage, flip it back open. We've been working through the book of Acts, and when we get to this part of the narrative, Luke's pacing is really interesting. Chapter 20 opens with Paul on the road. And as I read verses 2 and 3, I want you to have a look. See how fast the narrative is moving. As he traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. In two verses, Luke summarizes several months of ministry. The pace then slows in verses five and six. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. It's as if Luke is gently putting his foot on the brakes of the narrative as he moves from events that happen over many months to events that happen in the space of weeks. And then we reach verse 7. Paul has rejoined his friends at Troas, and the narrative focuses on one single night. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Months, weeks, one single night. Luke is slowing us down as if to say, here. Let's linger here for a while. In the diary, it's the first day of the week. For the original audience, that means it was a Sunday, and the group came together to break bread. And incidentally, this is the first record we have of a Christian gathering on a Sunday, as opposed to meeting together on a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. They've met to break bread, which is shorthand for the commemorative meal that Jesus instituted, by which his disciples would remember his death for them, the forgiveness of sins that he achieved, and the restoration of a good and right relationship with God. We call it the Lord's Supper, or you might know it as communion. And this Sunday gathering happens to be Paul's final night in Troas, and they're making the most of it. They've secured what seems to be a large upstairs room, perhaps the reception room of a wealthy local family, and they need the space. Because even though Luke said, we gathered, quite obviously there's more people. Because in verse 7, he says that Paul spoke to the people. The whole town have turned out for this. And it's got that final night buzz to it. Like at a festival where the biggest act is saved for the final night on the main stage. Or a holiday away with friends where you stay up late into the night chatting, having fun, because you know you've got to go back to work the next day. And so, Paul, the preacher, goes for it. He has a captive audience in front of him. He's leaving tomorrow, and so he is going to talk late into the evening. 
And you know what? I get it. Paul has just been on an incredibly intense season of ministry. He's just been traveling around nonstop for quite a while. He's been to Greece, where commentators think that he wrote the epistle to the Romans. As he's been doing that, he probably visited Corinth as well, a church where he's been having incredibly hard pastoral conversations with. And so, here he is with a captive audience. They want to listen to him, and so he's going to go for it. And Luke includes this wonderful detail in verse 8. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. They filled the room with light, as if to fend off the darkness of night. They fully and completely set themselves up for an all-nighter. Lights on, caffeine in one hand, snacks in the other. Let's go. But not everyone is with Paul. Paul's thinking, nothing could be more important than the sound of my own voice this evening. But for a young man named Eutychus, the most important thing is his struggle to stay awake. The room with all those lamps is warm and stuffy, perhaps a bit like Central Hall. And the preacher is droning on and on and on. Have you ever felt like Eutychus? Just write that name down there. (laughs) I love Luke's description of Eutychus sinking into a deep sleep. It's very physical, isn't it? Sinking. Kind of evokes pictures of your, your grandparents after Sunday dinner on a warm summer's day sitting on the couch, sinking into a deep sleep. I once heard a preacher who would take a set of tennis balls onto stage with him, and he would throw them at people that he thought was falling asleep. Another would just yell at random points to make sure people were awake. So Shane Paul didn't know any of those techniques. Because at midnight, tragedy strikes. Eutychus, now completely unconscious, slips from the window he is sitting in and falls from the third story down to his death. There's confusion initially as the crowd try to understand what happened. Those who grasp the situation quickest bolt down the stairs grab his body to see if he's still alive. But his body lies limp in her hands as they pick him up. Then, following behind, rushes Paul. The commotion has awoken him from his monologue. And bursting through the crowd, he throws himself on the body, wraps his arm around it, and has a moment of silence until Paul shouts, don't be alarmed, he's alive. The people crowd round to see if it's true. Eutychus sits up, rubbing his head. And the people then ascend back upstairs to that upper room, no doubt with adrenaline pumping and excited chatter. Can you believe what just happened? And they celebrate. They eat together as they finally break bread and take the Lord's Supper, the very reason they had gathered together in the first place. Now, this is where the story diverges from where I think we would expect it to go. Most stories follow a familiar structure. After the climax of the action, the tension in the story starts to ease 
in the falling part of the narrative. It's kind of the, well, what happens next part of the story, where you find out what happens and the new normal that people adopt moving forward. And I wonder, um, so yeah, they adopt the new normal of what's moving forward. So you imagine the prince has vanquished his rival, married the princess, and they enjoy the new normal of marital bliss with beautiful scenery and an orchestral music playing in the background. The hero returns home from their adventure, a changed person. They have a new appreciation for the ordinary things of life, a meal with the family, a stroll by the river. The daughter and mother have found a way to understand each other, finally, and have learned to thrive while living under the same roof, forever deeply connected with an unbreakable bond. You know what to expect when it comes to this part of the story. So how would you expect this story to resolve? They return upstairs to celebrate over a meal, and the headlines roll out over social media. Preacher bores teen to death, then raises him again. Cure for boring sermons found, death and resurrection. 25 surprising details you missed in the story of Eutychus. The new normal of the apostle and his traveling companions is a mobile miracle clinic where they take the power of God wherever they go, performing resurrections and healing the sick. Wherever they go, people are, just like in other stories of miracles in the Bible, amazed and astonished. That's what you'd expect, right? But does that happen? Well, can you believe it? Verse 11, Paul keeps on talking. Ooh, this man never learned. No news headlines, no mobile miracle clinic. In fact, he keeps on talking, and then as soon as it's daylight, the people leave. They go home. Oh, time to go now. Come on, Eutychus. We'll walk you home. And do they leave with an enduring sense of astonishment? No. They were greatly comforted, which is a positive word, right? But it's not quite what you'd expect. Well, if we feel that this is an unusual end to the story then we ought to pay attention to that. It suggests that there is something more going on here than just a miraculous return to life. Rewind with me back into the darkness of the night, back into that crowded upper room, and see with me two signs that are just hanging there. They're part of the scenery, not making a big amount of noise. They're like fire exit signs that just glow in the night to point the way. Sign one, the breaking of bread points us to the story of Jesus. At the start of the story, it's presented as the very reason they came together. But the bread, which represents Christ's body hanging on the cross, and the wine, which represents Christ's blood, they just sit there on the table for hours while Paul talks on and on. It's almost as if they were waiting for something to happen before they break bread. It's this frame around the story, because they do then take the Lord's Supper after the resurrection of Eutychus. 
It's this frame around the story that should immediately connect this story with the story of Jesus. You see, didn't Jesus talk for hours with his disciples in an upper room at night? Didn't Jesus die and rise again, just like Eutychus? And do you remember what the angels said to the disciples when they arrived at the tomb to look after Jesus' body? They said something remarkably similar to what Paul said. Don't be alarmed. He's alive. After he was raised, did not Jesus go upstairs as he ascended into heaven? Clearly, this story directs us to the story of Jesus. But for what purpose? For that, we need our second sign. Paul's actions direct us to the story of the church. You see, there are just too many curious details in this story, particularly when it comes to Paul's actions, for this just to be a plain miracle. For starters, they fill the upper room with many lamps. You can't help but feel Paul's intention was to go all night. That many lamps? It's as if they're desperately trying to keep the night at bay. And then when the dawn does arrive, ah, job done, let's go home. And then, and then there's the talking, and the talking, and the talking. Even after Eutychus is raised from the dead, what does Paul want to do? He keeps on talking. Well, let me put it to you that Paul's actions direct us to the story of the church. What have we seen in the book of Acts so far? Right at the start of the book of Acts, Luke reminds us of the story of Jesus. Acts 1 verse 3, after his suffering, that's his death, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And then verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. That's his ascension. And that's what the story of Eutychus has echoed with, right? Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And what did Jesus say the story of the church was in those very same verses? Acts 1 verse 8. But you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What is the story of the church following Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension? They talk, and they talk, and they talk. In Jerusalem, they talk. In Judea and Samaria, they talk. To the ends of the earth, they keep on talking. This balmy story of Eutychus is the book of Acts in a nutshell. A tragic event turned upside down by the power of God, followed by a whole lot of talking. So, what can this possibly mean for us? Wow, that was cool, wasn't it? (laughs) If you were asleep, you're awake now. I've got three things that I think this applies to us. Number one, keep the lamps burning. 
This side of Jesus' time here on earth, we live in the New Testament era, or what we might call the gospel age. We live in the era when the gospel is being listened to around the world, and the church's job is to keep the lamps burning. Meaning, when it comes to the gospel, keep on listening and keep on talking. And it seems so ordinary, doesn't it? You know, we turn up at church every Sunday and listen to a sermon. And Matt and Ralph are great preachers, aren't they? But let's be honest, we all know what they're going to say. About two-thirds of the way through the sermon, there's that Jesus twist, isn't there? You know what I mean? Yeah. And sometimes they do it really creatively, and it's quite cool. Sometimes it just feels like they're going on and on and on. I had a mate at uni who once said to me, you spend all week going to lectures, and then on a Sunday, you willingly choose to listen to another one. That's crazy. Listening and talking seems so ordinary. But it's only ordinary to us when we forget the extraordinary power that lies within it. You see, what happens to Eutychus only disrupts Paul's preaching for a moment during that memorable night in Troas. Why? Because it actually wasn't more interesting than Paul's message. In fact, it merely acted as a really good illustration. You can imagine Paul's sermon after that event. You see, guys, this is exactly what I've been talking about the whole time. Eutychus died, and that's like us in our natural state, dead in our sins. But did you see how I laid on top of Eutychus and wrapped myself around him? That's a bit like what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He entered death and wrapped himself around us so that when he rose from the dead, just like Eutychus did, we rise from the dead. Jesus is alive. And that means, so are we. Now, it makes me wonder, what if every time the gospel was preached, something visibly miraculous happened? Whether it be the sermon on a Sunday, or talking about Jesus with a colleague. If something visibly miraculous happened every time, wouldn't that make you more likely to keep on listening and to keep on talking? The point is, any miracle is just an illustration of the power of the gospel message that we already have. It's in the ordinary, week by week, day by day, talking the gospel and hearing the gospel, that God is powerfully at work bringing the dead to resurrection life. Let me speak to my fellow Connect Group leaders. Sometimes it can be ha hard to keep showing up. I've been there. The week has been such a drain. I start to entertain the idea of just cancelling Connect that week. Wouldn't take much, just a WhatsApp message. People probably wouldn't miss it. Or I'll go ahead, but I'll just put minimal prep into the discussion and just see it through. Keeping the lamps burning means I keep showing up for Connect 
because it's where my group will encounter the power, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And what about Sundays? I took a swipe at Matt and Ralph earlier. It was a cheap shot. Low-hanging fruit, both of them are on holiday. It's fine. But it is only fair, isn't it, that I say something nice about them? Because they do work really hard to keep the lamps burning for us. I preach once a year. (laughs) And I find it exhausting. (laughs) In fact, that's one of the reasons why I only preach once a year. It takes me 52 weeks to recover. (laughs) So this is it, guys. I'll see you in July 2024. (laughs) Ralph and Matt get up those steps every single week. And they preach their hearts out. Because they know that the preaching of the scripture is where God's Holy Spirit is going to work a miracle every Sunday. Doesn't that make you appreciate them a little bit more, the hard work they put in? So what about you? Where have you let the lamps grow dim? And what would it take for you to keep the lamps burning? Now, the Lord knows our weakness, doesn't he? As much as we might like to try an all-nighter, sometimes we're very much like Eutychus. We grow sleepy and we start to nod off. But staying awake is far too important. And so in his grace, the Lord intervenes. That brings us to our second application. Wake up when the Lord intervenes. I find a good question to ask whenever I read a Bible story is this. How are the characters different at the end of the story than they were at the start? In other words, what journey do they go on? Well, Eutychus at the start, he's dozing off during the sermon. It's right, we've all been there. But after what happened, you could bet your life that he is listening the most attentively than he ever has. What made the difference? The Lord intervened. Our hearts grow naturally sleepy towards his gospel, and it takes his merciful and gracious intervention to wake us up. Let me illustrate this by showing you how this Eutychus moment might have affected the Apostle Paul. I said earlier that Paul has just come off an incredible, incredibly intense season of ministry. Eric showed us last week that he's just started a riot in Ephesus. (laughs) He's been traveling around a lot. He's penned his magnum opus in the book of Romans. He's torn his heart out as he's pastored the church in Corinth. You would not begrudge him as he sets sail off to Syria, back home, by the way. You would not begrudge him putting his feet up, settling down with a good book, and sliding into retirement. That's not going to happen. This chapter 20 acts as a transition chapter in the book of Acts. It contains this story of Eutychus and the story of his farewell to the Ephesian elders, which Matt is going to be preaching on next week. And after that, it's on to Jerusalem. And the final chapters record unrelenting opposition, a series of trials that will lead to Paul's eventual death. Luke takes up a third of his whole book recording those final sufferings of Paul. And it actually reads a lot like the story of Jesus, who himself 
resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, towards definite suffering, trials, and eventual execution. And so this Eutychus moment is a profound one for Paul. Because it's the difference, isn't it, between sliding into quiet retirement and keeping the lamp burning. I believe this death and resurrection did as much for Paul as it did for the people in Troas, even Eutychus. For them, it made them listen even more attentively to what Paul was saying. But for Paul, it put steel in his bones for whatever would come, even death, if it meant the powerful gospel would keep going out. We naturally grow sleepy towards the amazing story of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the Lord could use almost anything to wake you up by intervening in your life. It could be a tragedy, something that strips you of all your natural resources and leaves you desperate to hear the Lord's word. It could be an unexpected blessing, Something happens that you're just so thankful to the Lord for that you just want to spend time with him. It could be something completely neutral, neither positive or negative. A comment you overhear in the supermarket queue, but the Holy Spirit uses it to intervene in your sleepiness and wake you up. We often live our lives, don't we, hoping that the Lord would intervene. Maybe we even pray for it. You might be in a place right now where your life just seems so chaotic that you're desperate for him to do something. The thing is, you're hoping that he will intervene by making things simple and easy. But what if the Lord has a higher purpose for you? What if it's that very chaos that the Lord is using to wake you up from your gospel slumber? We grow sleepy. The Lord intervenes. What is your Eutychus moment? Our third application as we come to a finish is take comfort. The dawn is coming. In our passage, the tension is held throughout the night, isn't it? They are absolutely committed to this all-nighter. And then as soon as it's dawn, oh, up we go. See you soon. There's an earnestness to their activity all night. And it's an earnestness punctuated by celebration. The breaking of bread, while remembering the gravity of Jesus' death on our behalf, is a celebration meal. And you know what? That's not a bad way to think about the gospel age in which we live. Earnest gospel activity punctuated by moments of celebration. And were it not for those regular celebrations, we might just find ourselves giving up on the task of proclaiming the gospel, because it can feel like facing a task unfinished. But it is an age that will come to an end. Up until midnight, the night only gets darker. But after midnight, the skies get progressively lighter as the dawn approaches. And if we're using this story of Eutychus as an analogy for world history, midnight has already passed. 
Jesus has died, risen, and ascended. We live in the early hours of the morning, and the dawn is fast approaching. In our passage, when the dawn does arrive, the people leave their homes greatly comforted. Anyone who has experienced a sleepless night knows something of this feeling. You toss and turn in your bed all night in a state of mental and emotional anguish. The things that play on your mind, they just feel overwhelming, don't they? It feels like the night will never end. But when dawn comes, doesn't it bring with it a sense of relief? The problems you are churning over in your mind haven't necessarily gone away. But with the coming of the light, they just seem a little smaller than they did at midnight. Lord of the Rigs fans will think of the Battle of Helm's Deep, where Aragorn and Theoden, King of Rohan, have their backs against the wall and decide to ride out together for wrath, for ruin, and the red of dawn. They ride out just as the first light of day starts to creep over the mountain. And the words of Gandalf echo, look to my coming on the light of the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And as the sun rises, their eyes are drawn up the mountainside to where Gandalf and the Rahirim stand, ready to sweep down into the battle to save the day. The light of dawn bursts onto the scene, bringing help and victory. Perhaps you're not a Lord of the Rings fan. The psalmist puts it this way, weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That can be true in our everyday experience, but it's also true of human history on the grandest scale. We live with suffering, opposition, chaos, pain, struggle. We are in the middle of the night. But we are past midnight. Jesus has defeated death. He is coming back to usher in the new creation where there will be no more crying and no more pain. And yes, we are closer to that day today than we were yesterday. And tomorrow will be even closer. Take comfort. The dawn is coming. Let me pray for us. Father, where we are sleepy to the gospel, intervene in our lives, we pray, for your glory and for our own sake. And for the sake of those around us who have yet to hear the gospel message. We praise you for the comfort that the dawn is coming and we long for that day when Jesus, you come with that burst of dawn and we see you face to face and we enjoy you forever. Amen.